0: Of that mushy stuff. You ready? If you got your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and then 1 Kings chapter 20. 2 Kings chapter 3, 1 Kings 20. So here's the deal. Um, any boxing fans in here? We got any boxing fans? A few of us. Okay, I I do love, I do love watching boxing, and uh, there's two types of matches when you watch boxing. Okay, the first, is the first 90 seconds, and it's over, okay? That was, back in the day, there was a boxer by the name of Iron Mike Tyson, all right? Yes, he was a boxer before Hangover, all right? Just want you to know that. Uh, Iron Mike Tyson, and the first 90 seconds of a boxing match with Mike Tyson was the most exciting 90 seconds of the late 80s, early 90s, because it was just fast and furious. He would pummel the opposition, and then it was over, right? It was very, very exciting. But for those of us who are real boxing fans, the long-range, rounds where it's eight, nine, ten rounds. It goes into the later rounds. You watch it. By the 10th round, the boxers are so exhausted. If they got nothing left in the tank, I mean, the swings are about just like this because their fists are so heavy. And the courage of those boxers to step out there, there at the end, and to try to fight in those later rounds, it's raw will and determination on display uh, in those settings. Now, when it comes to studying scripture, there is a fast and furious 92nd version where, man, when you study salvation, when you study forgiveness, when you study the life of Jesus, when you study the the words of Paul, the power, again, of the New Testament, and even some of the powerful miracles in the Old Testament, it can feel like that 90-second Mike Tyson boxing match. But remember, the later rounds are just as helpful when it comes to how we should live and how we should be godly. Most pastors quit preaching the story of Elijah at uh, 1 Kings chapter 19 because with the calling of Elisha, there's a natural off-ramp so that you can just move on and do something else. But not your stubborn pastor. We're gonna continue through and figure out the story of Elijah. So the story that we're gonna read today, for many of you, I can guarantee you, you have at least not heard taught from the pulpit before. And this is the story of Benadad. So let's look at this real quick. Now flip over uh, to 2 Timothy chapter three, verse 16 and 17. These are powerful verses for you to remember. You ready for this? Paul says, all scripture is God breathed. Underline all scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. Look at this. For every good work, underline for every good work, whether it's a 90 second fast and furious, exciting passage, or it's something that the Lord has put into scripture so that it can navigate us through a time of weirdness, complexity, and difficulty. Remember, if it is in God's word, it is useful. Amen. It is not in your notes, but if you want to write this down, you can. None of scripture is wasted. Let me say that again. None of scripture is wasted. If it is in the Bible, it is useful to us and can equip us for every good work. That's a powerful thing uh, for us to be able to remember. So, that, with the passage that we're going into today, it is a story. Remember, we've been studying Ahab and Elijah. Ahab is known as the most wicked king in the history of Israel. Again, was godless, pursued the Baals, led them into a time of of a human sacrifice, and then also butchered the prophets of the Lord. He was a very wicked man, and the country is divided uh, from a political and religious perspective. It's a really, really volatile time. But all of a sudden, we have a situation where they are then faced with annihilation at their borders, and because of that, the wicked king is the one who has to make the decision for the whole nation, the godly and the ungodly, during a difficult time. It begs our question today as we get started. Have you ever had a problem at the worst possible time before? You ever had a problem at the worst possible time? It's kind of like car trouble. There's never a good time for car trouble. But there are times where car trouble is really, really, really bad, right? If you have car trouble and it's negative 20 degrees outside, right? Then you're in real trouble if you don't have the ability to keep warm. There's sometimes a problem at the worst possible time can end up being deeply detrimental. Well, here's the situation. Flip over to 1 Kings chapter 20. We got a bad situation, and a bad leader at the exact same time. Now, just so you know, we work at passages top to bottom. We've been going through this for months. Waterfront stays out of politics. There's no political statement being made here. But for many of you going through this right now, you may be in a situation where you have an ungodly leader at your work In your family, an ungodly leader, in your community, maybe even on a government level, if you have a government job, and you're sitting there going, it just seems like if we have something bad that happens, then all of a sudden everything's going to fall apart. That's the case in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 1 through 7. Now look at what happens here. You ready? 1 Kings 20, now let's start in verse 1. So we have a divide in the country. Remember, Elijah's called down fire from Mount Carmel. There's a religious divide. There's a political divide. The prophets have been put to death by the sword. And then now the prophets of Baal have been put to death by the sword. I mean, there is a real crisis on every level here taking place in Israel. And now look at what happens. It says, now Benadad, the king of Aram, Underneath or around Aram, if you're somebody who writes in the flap of your Bible, write down Syria next to Aram. That's just a nice little deal for you to have there in your head. Uh, this is ben the king of Aram, but it's the Syrian empire, okay? Now, ben the king of Aram, mustered his entire army, accompanied by 32 kings with their horses and with their chariots. And he went up and he laid siege to Samaria and he attacked it. Remember, Samaria is where the uh, Israeli capital is at this point. He sent messengers into the city of Ahab, king of Israel, saying, This is what Benadab says. Your silver and gold are mine, and the best of your wives and children are mine also. Now the king of Israel answered, Just as you say, my lord, the king, I and all I have are yours. Now stop here for just a minute. The reason he's being so accepting here is not because he's just giving away his family at this point. The wording here is because back when David was king in Israel, David conquers Aram, and when he conquers Aram, David says, hey, since we're bigger and stronger than you are, you need to pay a tax to us uh, so that we won't attack you and harm you. Now, just for the record, there's debate amongst scholars on whether or not what David did there was godly or ungodly. Most of them lead ungodly, that David should have let those people be free. Instead, he conquers them, he makes them pay a tax. And so for generations, Benadad is raised in a system where he has paid a tax to Israel every day of his life and he's so furiously angry with them. Generational servitude. And he's so angry with them. So Benadab gathers the army together and says, we're breaking free from the tyranny of Israel. They're not even strong anymore. Gathers 32 kings. They surround Samaria and they go, hey, we're not subject to you anymore. We're not subject to your regulations anymore. And you know what? You give us the best of your family. You give us the best of your money. You give us your taxes. So what He's done here. Is he said we used to pay taxes to you. Now you pay taxes to us, and that's the reason that Ahab goes. All right, all right, I get it. We're down. We'll pay the taxes to you. I got problems here in the country. We're divided. We'll go ahead. You pay taxes to us. Now we'll pay taxes to you. But look at what happens next. Ahab is so weak in his response. All of a sudden, Benadad goes. Really, look at verse five. The messengers came again. And they said, this is what Benadab says. He says, I sent to demand your silver and gold, your wives and your children. But about this time tomorrow, I'm going to send my officials to search your palace And the houses of your officials, they will seize everything you value and they will carry it away. Now, the king summoned all the elders of the land and said to them, See how this man is looking for trouble? When he sent for my wives and children, my silver and gold, I did not refuse him. Now, stop right there for just a minute. The setup for this passage is that Benadad looks and says, Hmm, I don't just want a tax. I'm so angry with you for the way you've oppressed me over the years. I want to raid your palace, I want to raid your family. Family. I want to take your sons for slaves, take your daughters for prostitutes, and not just you, but every bit of the Israeli leadership. This is a vengeance moment here for Benedad, and you watch it unfold. Well, at this point, Ahab has a divided country where he doesn't think anyone's going to follow him anyway. So what does he do? He calls the elders together and goes, "Well, I guess we'll just do what he says. I guess we'll just roll over and die in this circumstance." When a leader feels isolated, they make poor decisions, even. In this story, we're about to watch. This is a wicked individual who is leading the country, but the godly around them are not subject to the will of that leader. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? God's power is not limited by the leader you serve under. Let me say that again. God's power is not limited by the leader you serve under. If you don't take anything else away from today, take this. Just because your boss, your leader, your leader, Your advisor, your family member is ungodly that's making decisions that affect you. That does not determine whether or not you live godly in your day-to-day life, Amen? amen? You can be godly even with an ungodly leader that is over you. It is a scapegoat for you to say, because I don't have a godly leader, because my boss is ungodly, that means that I am justified in my hatred and my bitterness that I am harboring in my heart. You can't do it. You can't do it. You be godly because you were called to godliness. It begs the million-dollar question. You ready for this? I told you, this is a later-round sermon. This isn't a Mike Tyson sermon today. It's a later-round sermon. You ready? How do you serve under a leader that is not godly? How do you serve under a leader that is not godly? There are some of you who need to take notes on this today because this is a lightning bolt from Almighty God. God breathed. In a sermon passage that you normally would never hear, it's God-breathed because you need to hear it to get through and not get fired this week. There are some of you that go, man, people are really going to struggle this way at work? Yeah, absolutely. And you are just one bad decision away from your organization doing the same. I want to encourage you. File this away. It'll be very important. And then some of you are going to have somebody in your life that you go, man, they need to hear this thing and you need to forward it to them this week so that they can make it through. How do you serve under a leader that is not godly? Let's watch, starting in 1 Kings chapter 20, and now we're gonna jump into verse eight. So again, he has said, I don't just wanna tax you, I wanna rob you and annihilate your people. That's what I want. I want you to hurt the same way you hurt me. Now look at verse eight. It says, the elders and the people all answered. Look at this. Don't listen to him or agree to his demands. Circle, highlight, and underline, don't listen to him, or agree to his demands. What they have just done here is even though there is a religious divide and a political divide, the Israelite elders, the ones who follow Yahweh, have said this decision affects all of us. Even though we don't like Ahab, even though he's persecuted our people, even though he's murdered our prophets, they stand up and say this moment is so much bigger that instead of just crossing our arms and saying anything Ahab does is awful, Instead, the godly person understands to stand up and to embolden and enable righteousness is a godly thing in any circumstance. So look at what they do. They stand up and they say, you can't agree to this, Ahab. You can't agree to this. You gotta have confidence. You gotta tell him no, not just for your families, but for ours as well. It's not about the taxes. We pay the taxes. They're trying to annihilate us. They're gonna rob us. They're gonna hurt us. Now look at verse nine. So when the godly stand up around him, it says that then Ahab fires back and he replied to Benadab's messengers. Look at this. Tell my Lord, the king, your servant will do all you demanded the first time, but this demand I cannot meet. So they left and they took the answer back to Benadab. Then Benadad had messengers send to Ahab this message May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if enough dust remains in Samaria to give each of my men a handful. Now, stop right there for just a minute. Does this sound familiar for any of you who've been around this study? We started chapter 19 with Jezebel saying, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if Elijah's not dead by this time tomorrow. Anytime someone says that in the Old Testament to Almighty God, he goes, Really? We'll see about that. What happens in this passage? He makes this claim. All of a sudden, it's a battle of gods. Look at what happens in verse 11. Again, so watch this. He says, you want to do that? I'll take you down and there won't even be dust from you to fill up, our, fill up my men's hands. And in verse 11, we get the greatest one-liner of Ahab's entire career. Ready? The king of Israel answered, tell him the one who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off. That's a heck of a line, isn't it? What he's just done, I want you to notice this. The wicked king in Israel, says in scripture he was the most wicked king in the history of Israel at this point, with the godly behind him on a righteous issue, not affirming his bad behavior, not affirming bad theology, but standing with him it gives him confidence, and then he speaks the same thing that God would have said in that circumstance. The one who puts on his armor should not talk like the one who's taken it off, like the battle's already won. Now look at verse twelve. It says, "So Benadad heard this message while he and his kings were what? while well, they were drinking in their tents, and he ordered his men prepare to attack that city. Stop right there for just a minute. What happens here is Ahab catches him off guard. He's just been rolling over this whole way. But when the godly stand up around him and go, look, we've had our differences, we don't agree with where you fall from a religious standpoint, we don't agree with you politically, but here's the deal, this is a decision that affects all of us, and telling him no, telling Benedad no, is such a powerful thing. We have to do this, we will stand beside you and encourage you, even though we struggle respecting you, we struggle respecting the decision that you've made. It is the right thing right now to stand up alongside you. And it causes Ahab to have courage and he does the best thing he's done in his entire career in this passage. If you're taking notes, write this down. How do you serve under a leader that's not godly? Number one, encourage righteous boldness. Encourage righteous boldness. Rather than give up, listen to me, or be negative encourage righteous boldness. We have a culture right now that says, I don't like you, and you could seriously make the best decision in the world, but I hate you so much, I'll stand against you no matter what. That is not what the godly do. The godly go on the side of righteousness, not on the side for or against the individual. And this city, it's gotten so convoluted where we just go, man, if I like that person, then I stand up for whatever it is that they stand up for. Godliness is separate. It's the reason, remember the story in Joshua that we've gone through, where Joshua's about to go to Jericho for this amazing miracle where the walls will fall down from them marching around and blowing trumpets. But do you remember how it starts? They walk up and there's an angel of Almighty God standing in the middle of the road. And Joshua goes, hey, bro, are you full? us or are you against us? And the angel of the Lord says, I'm the angel or I'm the commander of the Lord's armies. I'm on God's side, dude. And at that point, Joshua falls with his face to the ground and goes, then I want to be on your team. That's the way believers should act. Do the godly thing. When you get to the point where you go, my boss isn't godly, leadership isn't godly. There's no way they could ever make a good decision. Then guess what you've done? You've just given that person The same level of power as Almighty God. It's the reason the yin and the yang don't work. The yin yang doesn't work because the yin yang has one side light, one side dark, and they have equal power and equal influence. It's not yin and yang, bro. It's just one big circle of God. The devil's the deceiver, he wants to talk you into thinking he's yin and yang. That he's just as powerful as Almighty God. If he was, this world would look a whole lot different, I promise you that. Listen to me. When someone you despise, who you honestly are frustrated with, when they stand up with a good, godly idea, can you be the one to stand up and say, I'll stand behind you? That's a good move. Or are you so hate filled, you want to see them fall so badly? You don't care if they do the right thing or not. If that's you, can I just share a little truth with you? You're going to get fired. Plain and simple. When your anger has moved from the individual to I don't care if the organization succeeds or fails, you're right on the verge of getting fired, dude. You're right on the verge of getting fired, ma'am. I'm just telling you. If you're taking notes, write this down. You ready? Operate in the light. It is not godly to undermine your boss. Let me say that again. Operate in the light. It is not godly to undermine your boss. You could add to that ever. It is not godly to undermine your boss ever. There is never a circumstance when it is okay to undermine your boss. And some of you would say, well, you don't know who I work for. You know the pain they call me. You don't know the awful things that they do. Their authority does not determine your godliness. And if it really is that dire, go get another job. Go do something else. Because can I tell you what happens? When we get stabbed with that anger, it takes root, and then it infects us with bitterness. And then all of a sudden, you couldn't be happy if the greatest thing in the world happened in that organization. It's why Jesus Christ said a house divided against itself cannot stand. That wasn't Abraham Lincoln. That was Jesus Christ, okay? Okay. A house divided against itself can't stand. Even if you're the godlier person, that bitterness, that hate, that anger poisons you to be any help to the organization and then you are on the clock for them to get rid of you. I had a staff member I worked with years ago and this person got mad at me. You can get mad at me, I get it. People get mad at people sometimes. But all of a sudden it spilled over into that person hoping that the organization would fail because then it would put me in my place. And I'll never forget, we had a big event that we were working on and we had had a bunch of wins in a row. And then this one, it was a bad one, it was a dud, and it fell apart. And I'll never forget, I went in the next day and Autumn was there with me. And after we did the exchange, she looked at me and she goes, that's the happiest I've ever seen that person. When something we had worked on together as a team had failed. And I looked at her and I said, they're not going to be long for this place, I don't think. Now listen to me. I share that to say with you. In his mind, I think I was the wicked king. But the truth of the matter was this. He could be mad at me. Once he was mad at the organization, it wasn't help for us anymore. The same is true for you. If you are in either of those circumstances... Somebody that wants their ship that they're sailing on to sink is not somebody who is thinking or processing rationally. It begs the question, are you a rational voice at work? Are you a rational voice at work? Or are you a harbor of bitterness? You can add that to it. Are you a rational voice at work? Or are you a harbor of bitterness? There's a difference, by the way, in being someone who listens to other people's problems and someone who harbors their bitterness. You hold on to it for them to the point that even if they ever got to the point they grew past it, you could hold on to it so that one day when you're in that meeting, bam, you don't just slam down on the table your frustration, you slam down the whole office's frustration to make sure they know you weren't the only one that was angry. Can we stop doing that? It's not the godly thing. It'll get you fired, and it certainly will divide a country, won't it? we got to come to a point where we do the godly thing. Not just put all the blame, all the glory on our leadership. Now look at what happens next. This is crazy. You watch this. Ahab again, ungodly, wicked, but this was the greatest moment of his career. Verse 13, here's what happens next. It says, Meanwhile, a prophet came to Ahab. Underline, a prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel and announced, this is what the Lord says. Underline, this is what the Lord says. You see this vast army? I will give it into your hand today and then you will know that I am the Lord. Now stop right there for just a minute. You gotta understand the uh, the uh, complexity of this moment that's happened right here. Remember, Ahab's house has killed the prophets of the Lord up until this point. And the nation's divided because Elijah then has held the, the uh, execution of the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. I mean, this is a volatile situation the nation's torn apart religiously and politically and so for this prophet to show up and say I'm going to speak to Ahab on this day the spirit of God must have stirred him so heavily because I guarantee you he's going the last time anyone other than Elijah went to speak on behalf of the lord they were put to death and executed right then and there in ahab's presence but he comes in he guts it up shows up and says ahab here's what the lord has told me to say to you here's what the lord says you're going to win this battle today look at verse 14 but who will do this ahab asks The Lord says, your young officer, but this is what the Lord says, the prophet replied. The young officers and the provincial commanders will do it. And who will start this battle, he asked. Look at this. The prophet answered, you will. Ahab, you will. Underline, you will. It says, so Ahab summoned the young officers and provincial commanders, 232 men. He assembled the rest of Israelites, 7,000 in all. Stop right there for just a minute. Don't miss this. You have Ahab sitting there and he's like, you're a prophet of the Lord. You've just shown up on this moment. And the prophet says, I'm here with great courage because the Lord's shown me the plan. He's shown me what it is that we need to do. Ahab, we're going to win this war. Ahab goes, what are you talking about? The country's divided. Nobody's going to fight for me? Who's going to fight through this thing? And he goes, man, the Lord's told me the officers are even the ones that the ones that worship Yahweh. We're standing behind you. We'll stand with you because this moment's about all of us. He goes, well, who's going to lead him into battle? And don't miss this. The prophet goes, you will. We're going to follow you. Even though we don't like you, (laughs) even though we haven't agreed with you, it's the godly thing to do. You lead us. And you know what Ahab did? The best moment of his career. He listened to the prophet. He listened to the voice of the elders. And he led his men into battle. If you're taking notes, how do you serve under a leader that's not godly? Number one, encourage righteous boldness. And number two, seek the Lord for wisdom and direction. Seek the Lord for wisdom and direction. Do you know who seeks the Lord in this passage? It's not Ahab. It's the prophet. The prophet's the one who serves under the wicked boss, just like the elders serve under the wicked boss. The prophet sits there and goes, Lord, are you sure? But God's given him such a good plan. He shows up and says, now's the time. The prophet fights through discouragement, fights through fear, and shows up and shares the message. You know how a lot of us pray? Because we're smart in this city. You're smart people. In this city, a lot of times, what you do is you think through your plan, you present it to God, godly people, and then you go, Lord, here's the best I could come up with. I need you to bless it and give me favor. Can I tell you a secret? The Lord knows how it's all supposed to go. You don't take anything else away from today. I'm going to give you a good line. You ready for this? Write this down. Pray for wisdom and direction before the planning meeting and pray for favor and blessing after the planning meeting. Let me say that one more time. Pray for wisdom and direction before the planning meeting and pray for blessing and favor after the planning meeting. If you will go before God Almighty and say, Lord... I have empty hands, provide the plan for me. Then God, in his infinite mercies, he bestows these thoughts in our mind, these ideas in our heart that we never could have come up with on our own. And then it guides the meeting, it guides the discussion, it guides the thoughts. And then on the backside, you go, Lord, I feel like this is something that you've given directly to me. And now I lift it back up to you and ask you, multiply the five loaves of bread and two pieces of fish in my hand. Multiply it to feed 5,000. Bless it and give me favor. When we do it the opposite way, the Lord almost has to work in spite of us. There are some of you who are in work situations and it is so high stress, it is so difficult that you find yourself blowing up before you ever even go into the meeting. If that's you, it may have to do very specifically with you before that meeting happens, stopping and praying that the Lord will help you know what to do in those circumstances. And then you'd be shocked at the way the Spirit will calm you. It's a great little verse, by the way. Oh, uh, save your spot there and flip over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 5. One of the earliest pastors in the Christian church, and here's what James has to say. Why don't we ask God for help when it comes to wisdom? In some cases, if you're really honest, it's because here in this city we're smart and we feel like it's weak to ask for help, even from God. Look at what it says in James chapter 1, verse 5. James says, If any one of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously. Look at this without finding fault, underline without finding fault, and it will be given to him. This verse is so beautiful because James says, if you lack wisdom on the front end, ask God to guide your thoughts, to put his thoughts in your mind, his words in your mouth, his actions in your body. And then he says, and when you do that, the Lord doesn't look at you and find fault. He knows you need his help and he generously pours out those blessings upon you. He doesn't give you a couple of drops. He pours it out generously, and then it says, and he will give to him who seeks. It begs the question, is your scheme competing with the Lord's plan? Let me say it again. Is your scheme competing with the Lord's plan? Some of you in this room, by the way, are entrepreneurs, and I got the soft spot in my heart for you. Uh, Planting a church and being an entrepreneur are very, very similar endeavors. If that's you, I want to encourage you. Sometimes we can come up with one heck of a scheme. It will always fall short of God's plan. If that's you, I want to deeply encourage you. Go to God first with open hands and then see what he puts in your hands, and it may just guide you down a completely different path than the one that you were going to go down before. In the circumstance with Ahab, the godly leader, the prophet, having the guts to go into enemy territory and stand up and share this plan, all of a sudden, even Ahab, the ungodliest of leaders, still was able to hear it because of the desperation of the moment. Now let's look at the way this story ends. 1 Kings chapter 20, and now let's look at verse 16. This is crazy. You ready for this? It says, so they set out at noon, underline at noon, while Benadad and and 32 kings allied with him were in their tents, what? Getting drunk, underline getting drunk. Do you notice that twice in this passage, they started drinking early in the morning when the negotiation started because they thought that the battle was already won. And now all of a sudden it's noon and all the kings, all the leadership of the opposition are completely and totally wasted. Now look at what happens next. Verse 17, the young officers and the provincial commanders went out first. Now, Benedad had dispatched scouts who reported men are advancing from Samaria. Look at verse 18. This is the coolest verse in this whole part of the passage. You ready? He said, this is Benedad, if they come out, to t- they come out for peace, take them alive. And if they come out for war, take them alive. Stop there for just a minute. Israelites are fighting for their lives. They're fighting for their sons not to be slaves and their daughters not to be prostitutes. They're fighting for not not just the taxation issue, but from annihilation at this point. You don't think they're not gonna fight with every ounce of vigor? And what happens? Benadad comes up and he goes, if they go out peaceful, take them alive. And if they show up for war, Take them alive. What they've just done here is Binadab has said, they're going to fight at 100%. We're fighting at 75 Now stop there for just a minute. When you study this with the commentaries, one of the commentators said, it's possible that the reason he said, take them all alive is because he wants a higher level of taxation on them. He doesn't just want 10%. He wants 50%, that that could be the reason. One commentator said he's so angry with generational vengeance that all of a sudden he's decided, I want you to take them alive so that I can take them as prisoners and I can torture each one of them personally. But do you know what all the commentators agree on? That twice in these little set of verses, it says they were drinking and they was drunk. Can I tell you what it's agreed upon? The thing that we can't assume from this is the Lord has stirred the hearts of the leadership of Israel at just the right time where they can have a drunken commander making really stupid decisions. That's what you can agree on. Some of you struggle with alcoholism need to remember this passage. I'm just telling you. You make really awful decisions when you're drunk. And in Benadad's case, he will lose this battle in glorious fashion because in his anger and rage mixed with the... Veritas of alcohol, right? All of a sudden, he turns into this awful, awful monster. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? How do you serve under a leader that's not godly? Number one, encourage righteous boldness. Number two, seek the Lord for wisdom and direction. And number three, remember, a lot can happen in a day. Remember, a lot can happen in a day. I guarantee you, Ahab did not know that the leaders were drunk. I guarantee you, the prophet of the Lord did not know unless the Lord had through his spirit revealed that to him, that he was going to be drunk. And all of a sudden, when Benadab says, if they're fighting us or if they're not fighting us, take them alive. And if they are fighting us, take them alive. Then the men went, what? Are you serious? Your bloodlust, your vengeance, your hatred of these people is so deep Your racism against them is so deep. You're going to allow this to make this about you in this circumstance? And Benedict goes, but I'm the leader. I made the call. And the other leaders, the other 32 kings, are too drunk to make a decision there, too. So because of that, they follow through with this, and look at what happens in verse 19. The the young officers and the provincial commanders marched out to the city with the army behind them. Each one of them struck down his opponent. Underline struck down his opponent. The idea there is that they are fighting again with a Hundred percent vigor for blood, while the others are just trying to take them captive. At that, the Arameans fled, and the Israelites uh, fled the Israelite, with the Israelites in pursuit. But Benadad, king of Aram, escaped on horseback with some of his horsemen. The king of Israel advanced and overpowered the horses and chariots and inflicted heavy losses on the Arameans. That's the end of our story today. To say this, that decision by Benadad, when he had them under his control, his anger and his rage incited the work of the Lord, but the the leaders and the elders stood up and said, we can see past our anger towards the wicked leader to stand alongside him in righteousness. And then the prophet, I'm seeing past my fear and my worry because of what I've seen happen to my family members, what I've seen happen to other prophets, what I've seen happen in the past. I can see past it for what is godly in the moment to stand up and to speak the word of the Lord. And then at the end of the passage, we see that a lot can change in a single day if you're taking notes, our last little quote today, let the Lord unfold the day rather than predetermining a loss. Let the Lord unfold the day rather than predetermining a loss. Some of you are walking into work and you go, the algorithm already says it's going to be a terrible day. The percentages already say that my boss is going to yell at me. And the numbers already say that this is going to be something that falls apart. It's going to go this way. We call that self-fulfilling prophecy. You are walking into a circumstance giving your wicked boss the same level of power as Almighty God. It's not the truth. God can do whatever he wants, through whomever he wants, whenever he wants. You got to trust him. You do the righteous thing. It's a great little verse. For those of you who are truly having trouble at work, look at Proverbs 21.1. Sometimes when I'm going through a really tough time, I'll get a dry erase marker, and on my mirror, before I leave the house, I will write out a verse on the mirror in my bathroom. And uh, just for the record, you don't just write the the address, you write out the whole verse because you need to see those words, okay? When you're going through a tough time, Proverbs 21.1 is a really, really good verse if you have a bad boss. Are you ready for this? It says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. Say that again. Or we'll read the one that's on the screen. In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he he channels toward all who please him. The Lord, just like a waterway, twists and turns, and you have no clue a lot of times why it goes the way it goes. It's the same way with the heart of your wicked boss. It's the same way with the heart of a wicked leader that seems to be over you. They are still in control of the hand of Almighty God. He can direct it wherever he wants to. It begs the final question. Have you forgotten that your boss is not equal to God? Have you forgotten that your boss is not equal to God? Have you forgotten that your political leader is not equal to God? Have you forgotten that the family you grew up in is not equal to God. He can do whatever he wants and he wants you to be godly. He wants you to live for him. One final story and I'll close. One of my favorite movies is Castaway with Tom Hanks. You've seen Castaway with Tom Hanks. You've probably heard me talk about it a few times before. I love that movie. Whenever I'm having a really, really bad day, Autumn will come home and she'll see me watching Castaway and she's like, oh no, he's on the island again. You know, and I'm just like, oh, there it is. I get it. He's all alone trying to survive. You know, again, I guess I picture myself in Castaway. And so all that to say, you had 20 years to see it, but I'm about to spoil it for you. Um, at the end of the movie, he's, his motivation to get off the island the whole time was to be with his fiance, Helen Hunt, to work a great job for FedEx, all right, uh, and then uh, to get back to, to his old life and to get back to his family. Well, sure enough, he gets, like seven years later, he gets off the island through just miraculous fashion, and then when he gets home, the FedEx job has changed, um, his, uh, he's been in love with Helen Hunt, but Helen Hunt thought he was dead, married somebody else, and has kids with another dude. And so because of that, he just, he's just he's left all alone. And you watch him. He's just completely floored. It's like he's on the island figuratively all over again and isolated. And there's a scene where he's sitting up against this, this couch, and it kind of looks like a psychiatrist scene, kind of a psychiatrist's office. And he's leaning up against the couch, and the guy goes, what are you going to do now? And he goes, well, I just got to keep breathing. That's the line he says. I just got to keep breathing because you never know what the tide's going to bring in tomorrow. Now, listen to me. The wisdom of castaway is you don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know the one who holds tomorrow. The Lord is the one taking care of everything for us. And there may be a circumstance for some of you that you just need to keep breathing at work. You just need to pray. God, please. The prayer of Wilson Phillips, hold on for one more day, all right? Lord, give me one more day. There's some of you, your work situation is so volatile. Maybe, Arvia, your prayer is, Lord, give me one more hour. Lord, give me one more minute. Lord, give me one more moment where I don't blow up at them. Lord, give me one more second where I can just focus on you and where I cannot let the bitterness take hold in my heart. Listen to me. Addicts understand this. Recovering addicts understand this. You just pray, God, give me one more day. God, give me one more minute. Give me one more hour. Give me one more moment. Because you never know what tomorrow is going to hold. Is that a good word? Some of you needed to hear that today. Some of you needed to hear that today. This might have saved your job today. Or for some of you, it lets you know you being godly is not determined by who it is that's over you in power. Well, let's bow our heads for prayer.